Welcome to that. Jewish Boy Calls His Mother. I am your host, Sadia. This is my mother, Ima. Hey, Ima. Hey, little sweetheart. How's my baby? It's good. Coming along, just, you know, work and stuff. It's just, it is what it is. But yeah, it's doing great. How about you? Hey, Baruch Hashem. Can't complain or can I? <laughs> you can always complain. We're all ears. Hey, we're Jewish, aren't we? Are we supposed to complain? <laughs> oh, it's so terrible. Oh, my yeah. getchkas. They're all acting up most spilkas and stuff. Yeah, well, anyway. So, oh, so your, your brother sent me, the, you saw on the family WhatsApp, he sent me these really pretty, he and his, his Kala sent me this beautiful bouquet of flowers. Yeah. And so, anyway, when I took the video of me, you know, getting the flowers and thanking them, oh, my God, I look so ugly in that video. I do not photograph well. My eyes are real tiny. And I have these big, dark, you know, circles under them. And they're just like really, how can I say it? Dark and it's like shadowy eyes. It was bad lighting. Eyes. It was bad Maybe. lighting. I, I, yeah, I like that idea. I think I'll stick with that idea of them be just being ugly. Oh, you're fine. Don't worry about it. Um, I got a big, fat, double chin. <laughs> I would love to get a chin tuck. You can, Ima, just go get a plastic surgery. I don't know. Can you get plastic surgery at your age? Sure. You, like a... you can get plastic surgery at any age. The problem is the insurance doesn't pay for it. Can you imagine if yeah. the insurance companies were to pay for plastic surgery? Oh, my God. You could not get into half of the offices of the plastic surgeons. It'd be oh, so gosh. crowded. So fantastic. Uh, yeah. So we had a conversation earlier today, and we we're talking about something very interesting. We're saying the like, what is one thing you're tired of hearing from people? Uh, we mentioned for yes, I'm. They're bored. Bored. Being bored. Bored. Oh gosh, I remember when you kids were bored. If you when you kids were little, if you ever said you were bored, I would go bored, bored. Did I hear the magic word bored? Well, here, let me show you something very exciting. Here's the broom. Start sweeping the floor. That can be so exciting. And here's the schmata. Start dusting the furniture. That can be so exciting. And I remembered one time when um, I wanted you to dust the furniture. I mean, it really needed dusting very badly, the bookshelves. So instead of telling you to dust the bookshelf, I had a more creative idea. I called you over and I said, Saadia, look at this. And I made a heart with a little arrow going through it in the dust and wrote, I love you, Saadia. And I started writing all these little love notes to you in the dust. I go, isn't that nice? And look at my other notes and look what, oh, look how I wrote your name here in this part. And finally you said, okay, I get the hands up. That's the bookshelves. Yeah. I mean, I always like that idea of like, if you're bored, find something to do. Um, I think you were also talking about the frustrations you hear from young people in relationships where they're bored of the relationship and they want to do something. And you're mentioning something where it's like, well, if you're bored, then move on to the next level of the relationship and see where that goes. You know, well, I mean, <laughs> well, I remember in the, in the day of the um, radio talk show hosts that I would hear these young couples or young people calling and then I've been with this guy for so many years and I'm just so bored with the relationship and I don't know and that whiny whiny and I felt I felt like yelling to the radio you're bored I said 
get married, have a bunch of kids. I guarantee you will not be bored. Yeah, that's what I found so interesting also, because when I was listening to, I know what you're talking about, like Dr. Laura or like other, you know, you know, relationship advice radio shows. And it's like, you have these people that are in these relationships for like eight years, and then they get engaged for another eight years. And they think about getting married for another couple of years. And by that time, they can, you know, they have maybe a kid or two, and they just stretch out the relationship all the way along because they're not sure they're, you know, doing one thing or another. And they, they'll claim that they're bored of the relationship and they want some spice, but it's like, they're, I think once you face reality and once you face this level of comprehension that I, I would say you, you, you look at yourself and your significant other with a very honest eye, you'll start to see things, you know, more clearly and you won't be so bored. You'll show more appreciation. You'll care for the other person or you'll really want to, you know, move on to the next part of the relationship. I, I, I just don't understand why people stay in relationships without moving to the next phase, like for such a long time. You know, like I, I know people and I've seen people that they literally were together, living together for like years, for eight years, 10 years, mm-hmm. not even talking about engagement, not even thinking about engagement. It just, it boggles my mind. They, um, yeah, I think one of the things that you hit on about taking it to the next level that if the relationship is stagnant and you're not taking it to a, not just the next level, but a new level. Like let's face it, when you get married and you have kids, the, ratio, the relationship is not stagnant, it's changing. And that, you know, now that different aspects of the relationship are being introduced because of changing circumstances, that can be actually exciting. And sometimes people are afraid of that. Some people, you know, it's, it's like the old thing about when you, you know, um, like, peop- like when you read about people that have been in bad situations and you say, well, don't worry, you know, <laughs> get out of it, pack your bags, leave, run away. What, what, what's your problem? It's a bad, bad situation, get out of it. And what it is, it's well, they're comfortable in what they know. They're afraid of moving into the realm of the unknown, you might say, or out of their comfort zone, even though that comfort zone might be horrible, still, at least they're sure of what they have. Uh, I have to disagree with you on that one because, you know, knowing certain situations and whatnot, I think some people get stuck in toxic relationships because they get taught to stick things out and not break and not leave. And they're, they don't want to be a quitter. And because there's such a, there still is such a stigma with divorce and breakups. And it's such a fear that people get frozen in a relationship because of a fear that they have. And I think they just have to like break that fear, but it's, it's, it's a very real strong, tangible fear that they have Mm -hmm. that takes forever to leave and, and move past. I know what you, yeah. And I was talking to somebody who's a social worker who um, she and her fellow colleagues had dealings counseling this woman who was in an abusive relationship. And it was like, they, you're right, this woman was stuck. She, she did, you know, no matter how, uh, you know, it wasn't like she had children. 
and he was her sole support. And so she had, you know, it was hard for her to get, you know, financially get on her own. But um, this woman didn't have any kids and she was stuck with this. I don't know what it was. She was like, they, um, my, this social worker told me that she and her colleagues, every time they got a call from this woman, they go, yeah, here it is again. It's like, they, they, guess they just got frustrated with her. They couldn't convince her to, to move on from this guy. I met, a, I met a woman many, many years ago who she wasn't, it wasn't even a husband wife relationship. She um, was living with her, they were adults. You know, in fact, they were, they were middle-aged adults. She and her brother were living together in the same house and her brother used to beat her. Oh, wow. And I told her, I said, move out. I said, it's not like you're in a married relationship with kids and you know, you've got property you're gonna lose or something or benefits, you're gonna lose um, your child support. I said, there's no reason for you sticking with the, you know, living with your brother in the same house when he's beating you. I said, move out. Anyway, what happened was her, bro- her brother died. He had some wow. sort of heart attack and died. She was so broken up. She was crying and crying and crying. And I've had to bite my tongue from telling her, hey, lady, this is the happiest day of your life. <laughs> well, it's just, you know, it's, it's, a, it's somebody in your life that passes away. Even if they weren't the perfect human being, there That's still is emotional connection. <laughs> I know, but there still was an emotional connection they had. You know, you, you can't, it's, it's why people can't get out of these relationships. It's interesting because I was even noticing this other person I know is in this relationship, which is weird because they're both, they're both very opposite kinds of people. They're both opposite politically, opposite you know, mannerisms, they're just, they're just very opposite people. And it just, it doesn't look like it's a good shit. You know, it's not like they're like, she's a toxic person or he's a toxic person. And, and it's just a not good relationship that way. But no, it's just decent human beings. It's just, it's not a good fit. And, and w- the guy knows it's not a good fit, but he just can't help himself to be in this relationship. He can't stop himself from being in this relationship. And that's, what's, that's, what's so interesting. I think, I think it's like a fear of being alone. Maybe. Good thing. Could it's very, a, very well be. But I mean, you have, but it's, it's, that's a very strong, you have to like break that habit because you can't be in a relationship based on fear. It doesn't last very long. You know, it, it's, it's, it's kind of like, you know, mm-hmm. like back in the day, they used to beat kids to control the class and to control the, uh, control the children. And in the seventies, mm-hmm. they, they kind of got rid of that, you know, corporal punishment situation. It was now, before the seventies. It was it right was before the seventies. It, yeah, because it was right after World War. Well, it, it varied from country to country because ah. South Africa, um, I think South Africa, when I, I spoke to some people from South Africa, South Africa didn't get rid of corporal punishment until you're right, I think around the 70s. Mm-hmm. The United States, though, it was right after World War II. Oh, right wow. around World War II that they got rid of corporate, but it was state by state. And um, in the state of Maryland, the vice principal still had the right to hit a child, even though the teacher didn't, the vice principal could. And when I was teaching in Baltimore City in the 1970s, it was really sad. There were some, there were some neighborhoods where the teachers and the principals knew that the only way to control these kids would be through corporal punishment. Very, very sad. And they knew that. And they, they were in a position, you know, 
these teachers, I didn't like the idea, but these teachers and principals were in a position where do we let these kids run roughshod and not learn? Or do we put the fear of God in them and at least they're going to sit and they're going to learn? And they had that choice because nothing else worked with these kids. So um, I remember that there were some principals in these neighborhoods that actually sent form letters home to the parents asking for permission to hit their children. And legally, if they got permission from the parents on paper like that, they could do it. And this one principal told me that he, every year, got 100% compliance from every single parent. Wow. Well, I- But there was something that you brought up before though, about, um, oh, darn it, about, oh, you're talking about this couple who politically they're- they Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, I have to let, you, you jolted my memory about a funny thing that happened with me and your father. Yeah. I, when I first became a, went turned 21, in those days you had to be 21 to vote. I registered Democrat because, hey, my grandparents were Democrat, my parents were Democrat. And in those days I was more leftist leaning. So the Democratic party I thought was, you know, my party. And then when your father and I got married, we got our voter registration cards. And your father says to me, what party affiliation are you? And I said, I was very surprised. Well, like Democrat, because as far as I knew, the majority of you know Jews were Democrat. Yeah, you know, I said Democrat. He goes, why? And I go, well, um, my parents were Democrat, my grandparents were Democrat, and uh, I just you know, registered Democrat. So my your father says to me, you fool. He says, I registered Republican. I said, you what? <laughs> yes, I registered Republican. I go. <gasps> I said, you have affiliated yourself with that white. Anglo-Saxon party, I feel like I'm living with a goy. <laughs> the funny thing, though, was that later on, I did, I did become a conservative Republican later on in life. Well, I, I was adding on to what you were saying before. Um, so I know, I know the school I went to when I was younger, they definitely hit the kids. Um, it wasn't like excessive, like, you know, the, they were get beatings all the time, but it's like, the, the teachers were allowed to touch you. You know, they were, they were allowed to put their hands on you. But did, did you ever get hit? Because I, I told the principal and I told all the teachers in that particular school that under no circumstances were they to, to smack my child. I said, I would not, I said, I do not want that. And, they, and the teachers and the principal said that they would honor that request. So my first grade rabbi, I, I don't think he hit me or he, he hit me, but it wasn't like excessive. Like once in, once in a blue moon, I would get hit by my first grade rabbi. My second grade rabbi wouldn't hit me. He'd grab me by my cheeks and get really angry um, and just like get really stern with me. Uh, my third grade rabbi did not do anything. Um, he was a very nice rabbi. And then by that time I, I went to the other school and um, they didn't do that, do that at all. Uh, yeah. but, what, but my point I was trying to make was, was that you could only use fear for so long before it just gets used up. And, we, and when the idea of corporal punishment being banned in schools and the idea of not punishing with, the physic, with physical you know, um, punishment, you know, was, was slowly being removed, 
at first, I think that there was kind of a, a shock to the system where no one knew what to do, where it was like kind of letting loose, like you just let your kids do whatever and kids did whatever. But I think now they're getting to a point where we're not using corporal punishment, but we're doing other things to really make sure you understand the seriousness of the situation, which allows you to be more cognitive of what's going on and not be breaking all these rules and running amok. Mm-hmm. Well, I saw this, um, uh, one, uh, I saw a preschool teacher a couple of years ago who this was a, an amazingly skilled teacher, very patient, nice, very skilled lady. And she had a very difficult class. You know, it happens. It's interesting how classes run like that. Sometimes you have a class where the, the children are just very cooperative and very nice. And then you can have another class where um, for some reason you've got kids that are from maybe a very difficult home situation or the kids who are in this particular class are extremely active. And um, that and that's a year that's like a class like, oh, my God, you know, that's a class that's hard to handle. Well, she um, <coughs> these kids in her class. Um, when she, you know, would, when uh, they would have the, whenever they would have the opportunity to try to like sneak around her and run out of the room, they would, and they would run through the hall and they would hide under these piled up desks and chairs. And she would of course try to call them back and try to, you know, go out in the hall and try to get them back. And they would just run fast further. Mm-hmm. And the maintenance people were very concerned because they said these children are playing around and hiding under these um, piles of desks that are all piled up and these chairs that are piled up. This is a really very dangerous situation. So the way that she handled it was she made it almost like a game. She told the kids, we're going to practice me calling you and you coming back. And she let them go, like run out of the room. And then she called them and counted how long it took for them to get back. And um, now let's try it faster and faster. And if we get, and if you can, if you come back, Within two seconds, everybody gets, I think, what was a candy or a sticker or something like that. And that's, and she gradually conditioned the mm. class through candies and stickers and rewards to finally, you know, listen to her. And when she called them back, come back right away. That's, see, that's interesting when it comes to conditioning. It's kind of like, like positive and negative reinforcement, kind of like with animals. When you train them, like you're training a dog. There's a debate of like, you know, people, most people do hybrid, which is a mixture between positive and negative reinforcement. And I think that's something that people are kind of realizing, you know, eventually there's going to be a point where negative reinforcement won't ever be needed. I would, I would believe just, just, just when, watching. When the she comes. <laughs> well, exactly. Well, that's kind of the point I was making is that we're, we're slowly getting closer to redemption right. in this world. We're slowly getting to a point where we don't need the negative parts of reality you know so it's, true. it's slowly going away it's taking a while and we're all progressing and these things take time but we're definitely moving forward for sure you you really touched on the idea of the transition that there's a void in the transition like when people stop with punishments um the you know what exactly now now you need a set a new set of skills and i saw that among friends of mine that had children that were very, very hard to control, that were really, these, they had some children that had some real serious um, problems. And they would go to the therapist or the psychologist or psychiatrist, 
And all the psychiatrists or psychologists could do was give my friends a whole list of what they shouldn't do as parents, that they shouldn't yell at the kid and they shouldn't hit the kid. And in the meantime, the brat was doing whatever he or she wanted to do and had full reign and the poor parent couldn't get the kid under control because the psychologist was telling them what not to do, but not giving them that the new skills mm. to try to transition to a more positive uh, situation. It, it was kind of like, I guess, when you keep your whole, when you're, you're in a situation where you can't go forward, you can't go back. It's, it's, it's very frustrating. It's very much of a, of a panic situation. Um, but out of curiosity though, those kids that were hard to control, how were they as adults? Were they were, did they become decent adults or no, they were just as terrible? Um, I hate unfortunately, I hate to say it. I wish I could say, but I don't know. I'm only talking about my small circle of friends. Okay. And um, there were like two friends in particular. And unfortunately, unfortunately, no, no, these kids did not become uh, decent adults. Very sad to say. Oh, wow. Very, very, very sad to say. Yeah. Mm. They had, they had very serious, they never did learn self-control and they had very, they had very difficult lives. They had very, they had a lot of difficulty succeeding in the adult world and a couple of them never succeed a couple of them did not succeed at all very sad oh, wow. to say yeah Damn. so maybe would maybe the parents since they didn't have the new school should have should have smacked the kid a few times maybe maybe that would have worked who knows <laughs> now i don't know what to think <laughs> oh man yeah that's 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 sad that's a sad way to end our end our uh podcast um, yeah, oh i got a joke i got a joke yeah. oh, i got a joke. I said I it a, with a joke is it a positive i had a, i heard a, a very funny joke yes. uh there's there's uh on an airplane there's a row of seats three seats two two big tall texans and one little jew in the middle and they're talking about their success and the two texans one texan says I have 500 acres in, in Texas. They're like, oh, really? What's it called? It's like, well, my name is James Smith. It's called Smith's Ranch. And the other guy says, well, you know what? I, I have 600 acres. And they're like, really? 600 acres? He says, yep, all the way in Texas. And they're like, well, what is it called? Well, it's called, you know, Fuck, I don't know. Uh, ah, watch the language, man. This is a family sorry. show. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like, oh, I, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, it's, oh, it's, it's John's Ranch. I named after me. And then they asked the Jewish guy, it's like, well, what, how much do you own? He's like, well, I only got 25 acres. Like 25 acres in, in Texas? It's like, yeah. What's it called? Downtown Dallas. <laughs> but I'm bunch. Right, that's a good one. All right, anyway, I love you. I'll, I'll talk to you later. God willing. Okay, sweetheart. Love you. All right. See ya. Have a good Bye. job. Bye-bye. Thank
Thank you for listening to this week's episode. You can find us on YouTube and Facebook at Jewish Boy Calls His Mother. I know you would like it, and my mother would too.